Well, this is uh, the season of the year where there's a lot of talk about generosity, about giving. So I want to ask you, are you, are you generous? Are you, are you generous? If, if people were going to talk about you, or if you were going to give a, an honest self-evaluation, would, would generosity be something that would be kind of at the top of the list of a descriptor about you? And if so, why so? What, what would make you, what makes you generous if you are generous? Or if you do a little examination and see that you're not, why not? What, what is it that hinders your generosity? What is it that you're afraid of? What are, what are the things that, that make you more tight-fisted than maybe you ought to be? What, what is it that motivates us to, to give, to open our, our wallets, to, to, to share? This is an appropriate question this time of the year, and, and always, of course. We're moving into a time right now where culturally there's a lot of sharing of gifts. And just with that kind of sharing, there can come some bad motives. There can always be bad motives, motives for giving, right? How many of you have ever given something out of guilt? All right, yeah. That, that's, a, that's not a good motive for giving. Guilt, compulsion, duty, you, you have to do it. Or maybe some self-glory, you want to get your, your name on a plaque somewhere so everybody can kind of remember you for your, your legacy. Whatever it may be, there's bad motives for giving that can actually make your heart shrink, kind of like the Grinch, just grow cold. Or you've got this, this hard-heartedness and like, fine, here, take it. Because the, the scriptures tell us in the book of 2 Corinthians that God loves a joyful giver. A, a giver that is free to be able to generously give of what has been given to them. And that sort of generosity has, has a heart that is warmed and full and overflowing. I trust if you're anything like me, we all need a little bit more of that. That's what Paul's talking about here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He's, he's addressing these Corinthians about their, their generosity. Now, as you've been in the study with us, we've been walking through this, this, this big push about restoring fellowship between Paul and the Corinthians and the false teachers and the suffering and everything that's been going on, but he's, he's now moving the conversation along in their relationship to a really important reality in their lives. Because the Corinthians are facing a unique opportunity to be generous for an important cause. And initially, evidently, they had agreed to do so, and they were, they were all about it. But then, it seems like their, their willingness for generosity has grown a bit cold. So what Paul is going to do here is he's going to bring the, the generosity of Jesus to bear on them in such a way that it's intended to warm their hearts again that they might be generous. So I think Paul's message for the Corinthians and for us this morning be summarized like this. Give generously to God's work because Jesus gave generously to you. Give generously to God's work because Jesus gave generously to you. Now the context, I think, before we start reading these these verses here in chapter 8, the context is going to be really important to understand what's, what's happening here in, in the story. Paul is collecting an offering to help 
suffering believers back in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is facing a, has faced a wave of persecution, calling Jesus the Christ, saying that they are going to follow Jesus as Lord, has had serious consequences for the Jewish believers. Friends have renounced them. Family disowned them. Employers dismissed them. So you have an entire congregation there in Jerusalem that is utterly crippled by poverty. And they've got nowhere to turn other than to their brothers and sisters in Christ ab abroad. And so Paul has taken it upon himself to say, listen, I'm going to the Gentiles, we're going to spread the good news of the gospel, and we're going to take up an offering to take back to Jerusalem so that the churches that have can help the church that has not. He speaks about this in, in I'm going to read two passages, kind of, again, the context. Romans 15, listen to this. He says, at present, he's speaking to the Romans, at present I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jer Jerusalem. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So Paul tells the Roman church about this um, fundraising campaign that he's been on among Gentile churches to support the, the Jewish believers. And he says his plan is to collect it all, take it to Jerusalem, then come back to Rome, and for Rome to then be generous to help him get to Spain and spread the gospel there. Well, evidently, Paul had talked to the Corinthians about being part of this fundraising effort for the Jerusalem Christians. Um, and this is really important. This, is, this would be good for the Corinthians to be about this because the Corinthians were a very wealthy church. It was a very affluent area, and these, this church was known for having all kinds of stuff, including a lot of worldly wealth. So listen to what he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, that's, just, that's Sunday when churches get together, each of you is to put something aside and to store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Paul tells them every single week, after you get your paycheck, set a little bit aside to be able to help the suffering saints in, in Jerusalem. But, but don't, don't put it in stocks, keep it in cash, so that whenever I show up, you can liquidate it quickly and, and we'll give it to the people that you think are, are you know, trustworthy and we'll send it off to, to Jerusalem. So that's, that's what's going on. And evidently they had promised to, to be about this. But it seems in 2 Corinthians now, as we're about to get into this, that Paul has reason to be concerned about whether or not they're going to follow through. We're not sure exactly what has happened, but maybe false teachers have come in and trying to divert some of the, the, the resources. Maybe they just need some encouragement. But it seems that they've, according to the report of Titus, grown a little bit slow in the collection. And this is not just Paul trying to get money for them. You see, from them. Paul knows that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And that stinginess is actually evidence of real spiritual sickness. 
So this is not just about dollar signs. This is about the heart of the Corinthians. He's asked them to open wide their heart to him, and now he wants them to open wide their heart to the Lord and to those who are in need. So, give generously to God's work because God gave generously to you. Now we pick up the conversation. In verses 1 through 5, we're going to see the grace of generosity. The grace of generosity. Chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul shares a giving report with the Corinthians about how the churches in Macedonia have responded to the call to help the suffering saints in Jerusalem. Now, the the churches in Macedonia would be Thessalonica, uh, would be Philippi, so we have letters to the Thessalonians and to the Philippians, uh, and also the church of, of Berea. That area, the churches in that area have responded really well and have have given generously. Now, what makes their generosity, the church of Macedonia, so surprising here? Well, verse 2, the Macedonian churches were in a severe test of affliction. Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, wasn't the only church that was suffering. The the, the saints in, in Thessalonica and Philippi, they also faced a severe test as well. Their faith was also being stretched. Their devotion was also being opposed. If you read back through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and also Philippians, you'll hear in the background all sorts of conversation about afflictions that they were enduring, about opposition by false teachers that was really difficult, about persecution, about just general suffering that was going on. They also endured not just affliction, but verse 2, extreme poverty. And this is not simply because the economy was bad. In the same way that Jewish people suffered persecution for following Jesus, well, Gentile believers are going to suffer persecution as well. They also faced great cost of following Christ. Because remember, they've renounced their gods and their idols. They've stopped participating in in the guilds, which are basically business fairs uh, where you would go to make contacts uh, for, 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 for business, but they always centered around uh, pagan gods and sacrifices to them and immorality, and Christians just couldn't be associated with it anymore. It's kind of like taking a work trip to Vegas, but you have to participate in all of the drunkenness and the clubs and all the stuff. that you can't, You're like, I just can't be about that. I, I'm not giving in to that. So when they did that, they were ostracized. They lost their jobs. They lost their, their wealth. That was going on in the Macedonian churches. Yet, despite their affliction and their poverty, a miracle happened. Look again at verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy 
and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That is an unlikely equation to work out. You've got two unlikely partners here, affliction and joy, that produce an even more unlikely fruit, generosity. You wouldn't think that affliction and joy would go together, and you wouldn't think that affliction and joy and poverty would all produce generosity. That just doesn't, doesn't add up naturally. It's, it's interesting, the word generosity here, it, it, it comes from the word sincerity. It means to give, but not just to give, to give with a sincere heart. To, to, to give with a pure heart, with sincere motives, without compulsion, without ulterior motives, without glory seeking. It's to give out of the abundance of sincerity for the pleasure and the well-being of others. Now this is a miracle because when people are enduring affliction, they typically lack joy, right? And they typically are not focused on the needs of others. How many of you are grumpy and selfish whenever you're suffering? Well, all of us if we're honest. I mean, this is, this is the, na that's natural posture, right? Suffering draws our attention kind of away from God, away from others, down away from joy. But that is not what has happened here to the Macedonian church. Th these suffering saints in their affliction gave, had an abundance of joy. Notice here, in their affliction, not after it was over, but while they were in it, while they were under it, they had an abundance of joy. Circumstances did not sap their joy, but rather provided a surplus of joy. It didn't steal it. It actually somehow infused it with more joy. The way is because they clung to Christ in the midst of it. And God gave them grace. Right? And, and the overflowing joy produced by clinging to Jesus produced an overflowing generosity. And it's like as they poured it all into Paul's arms. So Paul goes by thinking he might get, you know, get a couple bucks from, from this Macedonian church. That would, that would seem right. But they come in and they're just, they're like wheelbarrows full. Just giving it to Paul. And he's like, wow. You had overflowing affliction, but you also have overflowing generosity. It's surprising. Verse 3. They gave beyond their means of their own accord. They didn't force them. I didn't even give one sermon on giving. I just said the, 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 the saints in Jerusalem are suffering, and they said, not for long. Let me, let me get you whatever we got. We're going to break piggy banks or whatever they did, and they're going to they're scrap it all together, and they're going to find a way to make sure that their brothers and sisters aren't going to suffer for long. They're driven by compassion, not compulsion. Verse 4, begging us earnestly, for the favor or the privilege of taking part in the relief of the saints. All they can think about doing when they hear about these suffering saints is, how can I help? What can I do to relieve their suffering? Verse 5, this was not as we expected. <laughs> like, I wouldn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see it. They caught me off guard, to be honest with you, okay? Now, what could explain their joyful generosity in the face of every reason to not be? What, what could make them so others-focused in their giving? 
Well, our text today says it three times. We see it in verse 1, verse 6, and verse 7. It's the grace of God. The grace of God. Look again, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Verse 6, this act of grace. Verse 7, in this act of grace. Grace is to, grace explains their generosity. Grace is a, a, a free gift of div divine enablement to do what we can't do in ourselves. That, that's what grace is. Grace is a free gift of divine enablement to do what we can't do in ourselves. So God's grace gives us life so that we can believe in Jesus. But God's grace also gives us strength to live like Jesus. God's grace enables us to stand rightly with God by his righteousness. And grace empowers our stepping for God, living out practical righteousness. God's grace forgives us, and God's grace practically transforms us. Spurgeon said, grace does not leave a man as he is. I mean, it changes you. Grace supplies strength for us to see beyond our circumstances, through affliction, so that we can respond to the opportunities that are before us that God has provided. Because affliction tends to cloud everything. Everything's dark. I can't see past my own pain. But grace comes in and gives us eyes to see through it. God had come in relief for the Macedonians' poverty and sin. And they see that and they're overwhelmed by that. So now they long to take part in the relief of the suffering of the saints in Jerusalem. Notice here how, how generosity works. God gave them grace. He gave himself to them. And they, verse 5, gave themselves to the Lord. They yielded themselves to the one who had been gracious to them. This, this, this changed them. Right? It's, it, it, it is why they did what they did. 1 John 4, 19 will say it this way. They loved because he first, what? Loved them. And then, by the will of God, they gave themselves to us, the apostles. Meaning, by, by the time they handed money to Paul, what had happened before that was they had, we'd already done business with God. We spent time with him. We had been overwhelmed by the joy of God that despite circumstances, they can take all our stuff. But we've got, we've got more than enough because we have Jesus. That's why they can just give it away. Because that's not their security. It's not their hope. Friends, this is really important. Generosity is evidence of God's grace in your life. Generosity is evidence of God's grace in your life. One of the clearest evidences that God is changing you to look more like Jesus is generosity. There's a young believer, I, I remember, they had just come to Christ, I was kind of a, a wild background, they were so overwhelmed by how much God had done for them and given them, and they just kept giving money away to everybody. 
I mean, every, every, every homeless person they would see on the road, they want to just start handing out money. Every time there's a need, they're like, do that. They see something on TV, they're like, how can I give to that? And we're like, okay, listen, slow down. Now, what we didn't want to do was quench generosity. We wanted to help grow in discernment. How do you take this zeal that's being stirred up in you appropriately and aim it in the right directions? That's maturity. But you don't want to... <laughs> Christian maturity is not becoming less generous. <laughs> like you want to fan into flame that sort of thing. That zeal is right. Let's just figure out how to point it in the right direction. So you're not homeless as well, right? Like this is, we got we to gotta figure out a way to do this that is wise, right? So a, a grace filled heart is a generous heart. It looks at God's generosity toward us to see that where our sin abounded, his grace abounded all the more. We sing songs like Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Because we knew we had a big old debt. And that moves us to say, who can I bless with my life? Who can I help with my wealth? Whether I have a little bit or a lot bit, that's not the question at hand. The question is, does it have you? Or is it surrendered because Jesus has you? So I'll say it this way. Stinginess is anti-Christ. Stinginess is anti-gospel. It looks at the generosity of God toward us and says, it distrusts God that he'll really keep caring for us. Or it has a cold heart toward others that kind of thinks, you know what, I'm sure their hardship is because of some stupid thing they did. As if your entire life is not marked by stupid things that you did. All right? John will say it this way. 1 John 3.16. By this we know love. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. Generosity. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Be like, all right, I'll take a bullet for a brother. Be like, yeah, I ain't just talking about that. But if anyone has the world's goods, you got stuff, and sees his brother or sister in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He says, whatever that is, is not reflective of the love of God. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, right doctrine, but in deed and truth. He says, put your, put your money where your mouth is. You got good doctrine? That's half the battle. Now, do you have good deeds that look like it too? You, you all about grace? Praise the Lord. It should show itself like it did with the Macedonians. Now, I'm staying on point one for a minute because there's a lot here. Hang on. Point three is the shortest. Hang on. So this is, this is why Paul is lifting up the Macedonian example for the Corinthians. He's aiming to inspire obedience in them. He says, look at the example of the less fortunate Macedonians. And again, he's not shaming the Corinthians here. He's, he's inspiring them. He, he's, inspire, he's inciting them to do what, what Dane Ortland calls the healthiest of competitions. 
the competition of Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor by contributing to the needs of the saints. He's like, let's, let's provoke a little healthy competition here. Look at their example and may it encourage you to do likewise. And I just want to be really clear. You do not have to be rich to do this. Some of the most generous, inspiring Christians that I know are the poorest. They don't, they don't have basically anything, but the way they live is so free from needing stuff. Because there's something that happens when you start getting money, you get scared about losing it. You know, you, you think you're anxious when you're poor. That's true. There's a different kind of anxiety when you got money. What do I need to do to make sure I keep this? Because I've got a standard of living that I kind of like. I like this comfort. i got this security about the future that that means a lot to me. And you start trusting it in a way that we get all kinds of weird and closed-fisted and closed-hearted. Think about how Jesus used the example of, of the widow, right? He sat down opposite the treasury, Mark 12, and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two copper coins, which makes... In our context, a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, this poor widow, like the Macedonian, had put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Brothers and sisters, I think we're to see the generosity of the Macedonians here. That's like this widow here. And be moved and inspired to say, how could I be generous like that? Because generosity is evidence of grace. Number two. First we saw the, the grace of generosity. Now we're going to see the God of generosity. The God of generosity, beginning in verse 6. Accordingly, we urge Titus, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and your love and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this ma matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Paul says that, that, that he had shown them the, the Macedonians' generosity, and now he's bringing it back to the Corinthians' opportunity. You've got a chance here to to follow through on your, your giving. Titus came to urge the Corinthians to finish what they started, to keep up their commitment. Again, verse 10, 10 Paul highlights that a, a year ago they had started to do this work. Again, as we read earlier, they started setting it aside every time they got together, putting a little something in the benevolence fund every single week, just making sure so whenever it was time, it was ready. But you also desired to do it. So you weren't just willing, if you remember, dear Corinthians. You were wanting. You wanted to do this. Don't you remember that? So, so Titus here, just note, Titus was, Titus. That's a, 
that's probably in the Mormon Bible. That's not in this one. So <laughs> Titus, Titus was sent, sorry, if you're visiting and you're a Mormon, I'm sorry, please forgive me for that. Uh, but I'd love to talk to you about your Bible. Uh, Titus was sent to help them complete the act of grace that had begun in them. To help them to, to obey. Which I just think, even that is important to notice. That we need to encourage others in their service of the Lord. That's what Titus did. He showed up to say, I'm going to help you live this thing out. And sometimes we need others to encourage us in our service of the Lord and of others. Calvary Baptist Church, you do realize that the reason we gather on Sunday, there's lots of reasons, but part of it is to initiate and deepen and develop relationships with one another that are open and honest in such a way that people know about every area, not everybody needs to know everything about you, but there's somebody who you walk with on the regular who knows about every area of your life to help you obey the Lord in it. You do realize that being a Christian means that there's no area that's off limits to his lordship and that privacy, there is, there is a reality where that is, that is true. Your business is not everybody's business, but in one sense it is. What I do privately matters to you because the name of Jesus is tied to me. So I have people in my life who know everything about me, including my money. I guess dangerous, I'll say it this way, it is dangerous if you do not have people in your life who know everything about you, including what you do with your money. Now, the reason you go, ooh, and you don't like that is because it's an American idol. And I don't mean the show. I mean we worship money. So much so that we're like, that's off limits. You just realize Jesus warned more about money sending people to hell than anything else. So if I was Satan, you know what I'd do? I'd make you touchy about money. That's not a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a sign of spiritual insecurity. But God gives grace for that. He'll help you to grow in that. So build trusted relationships with sober-minded spiritual friends to help you carry out your obedience to Jesus and also cultivate your own spiritual sobriety so that you can help others. That's what Titus showed up to do. Well, verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul says, listen, y'all, God's grace is on you. I, 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 I see it. But there's an, there's an area, this area of generosity, that right now I'm not, I'm not seeing flourish in a way that is really concerning. So, so to be strong in faith as you are, O Corinthians. To be wise in speech as you are, O Corinthians. To be rich in knowledge, O Corinthians. To be full of zeal as you are. To be connected to other Christians who love you, yet lack generosity. Especially in this context, promised generosity is not a sign of spiritual health. So just to be really clear, one of the things about the Christian life is you can't compartmentalize your obedience. You can't be like, have an area over here, you're like, Jesus is Lord of everything except this. Like, Jesus is Lord about everything in my life except what happens in my bedroom. Or Jesus is Lord of my life about everything except what I do with my taxes. Or Jesus is the Lord of my life, everything except how I talk about people or how I act on, online or whatever it may be. That is not the Christian life. 
we are wholly devoted to the Lord. Our bodies, our entire lives are living sacrifices. And Paul says, well, I, well, I'm, well, I'm observing you guys, I see a lot of good fruit, but there's an area of withered fruit that makes me really concerned, and particularly, it's around generosity here. So, so to be clear, stinginess is not only anti-Christ and anti-gospel, it is evidence of, hardened, of a hardened and deceived heart. I mean, think about it. How many of you have had opportunities to give but you felt like, gosh, I, that's going to be inconvenient that I give. That's going to that's hurt a little bit. And you were you are either slowed or hindered in giving it. How many of you? Like, that's, that's real, right? So I should be really clear that as we, if we abide in that sort of world where we are, we're constantly kind of withholding and making up excuses and justifying it, the more that we do that, the more you're having to justify to yourself and lie to yourself this is, by the way, the way you deceive your own heart and harden your heart, is you believe your own lies. Well, I'm pretty generous, right? Or this is just a season. So I should be really clear. If you don't give when you're poor, you ain't going to give when you're rich. So I should be really clear. As now, so then. It's a principle in dating. It's also a principle in everything else. As now, so then. Well, I'd have more if I gave more. Maybe. What makes you think that you would if you don't do it now? Well, I've, so, I've worked so hard, I deserve to keep this for me. This is where in Deuteronomy the Lord would say, who made you smart? Who gave you the ability to make your wealth? Do not forget that I gave you that. You see, stinginess is evidence of spiritual sickness. Hearts that are spiritually flourishing are free from the love of money. They see everything that they have as a stewardship to honor God and to bless others. Well, and, and in verse 8, he, he assures the Corinthians here that he's not merely commanding them to be generous. He's, not, he's saying, I'm not just coming with a cold heart, you've got to do this, here's my authoritarian word. But rather, he's, he's compelling them to be generous. He's shown them the, the Macedonian example to inspire generosity. He's pointed to an, an area of incomplete fruitfulness to, to inspire spiritual growth. Now verse 9, he's going to move to the most powerful motivator for generosity. The generosity of Jesus. You see, Paul, Paul knows that the gospel does what guilt cannot. How many of you have ever been guilted into giving something to church? All right, Like you've heard the sermons on giving and it's all about guilt. Guilt does not make you generous. It might get you to give, but it will not make you generous. It is the gospel that melts the hearts of God's people and moves them to love generously and give generously like Jesus. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. If you want to know what the Christian, Christianity is all about in one verse, that's a good one to look at. This really summarizes the entire gospel message. So if you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, I just want you to know this is what we believe. That there is a God and that he came as a man, the God-man, Jesus, the very son of God. 
that he gave up his own glory and honor to come among us to die for us and to rise from the dead so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to him. This is the Christian message. And, and, and this, this gospel word, gospel, means good news. And do you notice, this is brilliant, do you notice how Paul brings the gospel to bear on them here? He, he applies the gospel in, in terms of, of relating to what he's teaching them. He, he, he presents the gospel in money terms. He doesn't just say, Jesus died for your sins, so be generous. That's totally true, and that's, that's, that's a good reason. But he meditates more deeply here. He repackages the gospel while keeping it faithfully in, in, in money terms. Jesus was rich in his pre-incarnate state. He shared the eternal love and glory of the Father and the Spirit. Right? He, he was celebrated with well-deserved, unhindered devotion by the angels. He, he was unhindered by any human restrictions. He was God. Yet, he became poor. He didn't cease being God, but he added humanity to himself. He took on human flesh. God became a man. This is the incarnation. So we celebrate this time of the year, many Christians do. We remember the incarnation, incarnate, in flesh. This is an act of severe compassion. He becomes like us to come among us, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. This is the ultimate divine humiliation. So the incarnation was not an upgrade for God. C.S. Lewis uh, uh, in Mere Christianity says it this way. Think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. <laughs> because that's basically what the incarnation is like. It, it's not an upgrade. In Hebrews 2.17, Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect. It was really interesting. This week I had a, a, a good gospel conversation with, uh, with, with a Muslim gentleman. Um, he was helping me with an issue with my tire. And we got into a, a conversation about all kinds of things. Um, but one of the things we talked about uh, was he said, answer me this question, and I will become a Christian right now. And I said, uh-oh. I said, Lord, help me. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what he's about to ask, but I need something. <laughs> uh, and he said, um, does God need anything? And I said, I know where you're going. <laughs> That's why I said, I said, I know where you're going. He goes, just yes or no, does God need anything? And I said, no. And he said, well, then Jesus can't be God. Did he not need his, his mother? Did he not need, you know, her womb? Did he not need her, her breast? Did he not need her nurturing? Did he not eat? Did he not drink? Did he not breathe? Did he not need? So, see, Jesus cannot be God. I was like, you want an honest answer? I was like, yeah. I was like, listen, it is tricky. I'll be honest. But when Jesus, Jesus eternally existed, when he became man, he did not cease being God. God completely sufficient in himself humbled himself by adding humanity to himself so that Jesus is fully God, fully man. So yes, in some kind of way that is difficult to fathom, you know, there's a song about it, the maker of the moon was in his mother's womb. I butchered that song, but you know what I'm saying. Like, it is, it is unfathomable to us, but yes, this is what God did. And he never ceased being God. Through his whole life, through his death, through his resurrection, never ceased being God. But he was also fully man. 
which, which I said is either blasphemous or glorious. And that's the difference between our religions. Is that you think it's blasphemous. I think it's glorious. And God says it's the way of salvation. That unless God comes and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, we will all die and go to hell. So pray that God would have mercy upon him. But, but he didn't just stop in becoming like men. He took our sin upon himself. Second Corinthians, he said earlier in chapter 5, verse 12, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how we become rich. We get the righteousness of God. And staring at Jesus and seeing what he did on our behalf is what moves you to be generous. Listen to how he does this in Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. What can I get out of this or how can I look good in this? But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How do we do this? Well, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning he did not hold on to his rights as God. But he emptied himself, not of divinity, but of his rights as divinity, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, and not just death, but death on a cross. You see how low God went? He came among us. But not just to come among us. He didn't come as the, as the king. He came as a servant. But not just a servant, but one who died, but died the most horrific death. He went low. He was humiliated. He became poor. And why did he do this? Second Corinthians tells us, for your sake. He did that for you. And not while you had it all together. The gospel is not that Jesus died for you because you're awesome. The gospel is that Jesus died for you because he's awesome. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were undeserving, still had our, our fists up in him and, and saying, no, you will not rule over me. He says, oh, I will. And in mercy, he gives himself. He did this for your sake. Because we who were poor, having been robbed by sin, Satan, and death, he entered into our poverty so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus switched statuses so that we could switch statuses. Jesus went from riches to rags so that we could go from rags to riches. What kind of riches? Not Armani, not Gucci, not whatever your thing is. Not so you can, I know, yeah, sorry. It doesn't, I'm not saying you can't have that. Anyway, another sermon for another day. What I'm saying, though, is it's not worldly riches that are our boast. That, that's not what we live for. Houses and cars and empires and wardrobes. That's not what distinguishes the people of God and makes them rich. What makes us rich are heavenly riches. Ephesians 1 says we have in Christ every spiritual blessing. That we know the Father, we know the Son, we know the Spirit. We've been reconciled, we've been forgiven, we've been sealed by the Spirit of God who now produces the life of Christ in us. That's riches. I remember when I was not a Christian, God brought two particular people into my life who had what I could never find through all of my drinking and drugs and partying and gambling that I was looking for, they had peace. They had peace. They had freedom. They had joy. 
worth more than silver and gold. He says, this, is, this, is, this benefits you, verse 10. He puts this portrait of Christ before them because it benefits you. It aids them to walk with Jesus as he walked, to live as God intends. So guilt might move you to give, but Jesus moves you to be generous. Generous. Guilt might move you to give, but Jesus moves you to be generous. So behold the glory of Jesus in his giving that we might be moved to give as well. Which then finally and briefly leads us to the opportunity for generosity. The opportunity for generosity, verses 11 through 15. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Paul is calling them here to finish what they started in their generosity. You said you were going to give, now give. And he's also making really clear that the Corinthians, he's not calling the Corinthians to give in such a way that's not going to make them poor. He says the goal is not to make everyone, you know, move everybody into to poverty. They don't have to go into to debt to help others. He's not asking them to, to swap financial statuses with the Macedonians or the saints in Jerusalem. That's what he says, verse 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. He holds up this Christian ideal of fairness and says this is, what we, this is what ought mark the people of God, is fairness, equality. This is not a call for Christian socialism. At the same time, there's a sense in which Christians are to be so mindful of one another's needs that it produces in them Acts chapter 2 sort of life where they have everything in common. He says, how strange would it be if you have an abundance and one of your family members is sleeping in the yard? That's not love. He's like, if you got, give to them. That's fairness. He's talking about a mutual concern for one another. Knowing that when one part of the body suffers, the whole part suffers. He also, did you notice here how he put this in? Verse 14. Your abundance at the present time. He just wants everybody to remember that your, your financial status is not always static. You could be poor. You could lose everything in a minute. Some of us, that's the testimony of people in this room. You've lost everything at times. Right? This is why you don't put your hope in worldly riches. Because worldly wisdom says cling. Christ says give generously to your brothers and sisters sisters as they need. And then he drives this home with a quote from Exodus chapter 16 and 18, recounting the way that God worked with his supply of manna. Verse 15, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Meaning whether you had a family of 15 or it was just you, whoever gathered, they always had enough. God always gives his people everything that they need. The Israelites gathered some more, same less, but no one ever lacked. God always supplied their needs. There's no need to hoard your manna. What happens with hoarded manna? You remember? That's, that turned nasty, funky nasty, right? 
He's talking worms and all that kind of stuff. He says that, he goes, in one sense, it's like a parable of what happens in your heart when you hoard the wealth. It corrupts you. But rather, all of God's people trust that God supplies our needs. Sometimes we are the means of giving that needs, and sometimes we're the ones in need. So I just want to say this morning, if you're here and you are in need, just trust it's God's providence that you're here, especially if you're a member of this church. I don't want you to, f- I, I have heard testimony from brothers and sisters in this church who are, who are not well off, that it can be intimidating because there are people who are well off in this church. I just want to be really clear. Anything that any of us have, it's the Lord's, and we are a family, and we, you do not need to suffer in silence. If you lack, we have a benevolence fund that is constantly given to, to help, and there is no shame. I, 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 I'm not going to do this, but I wish I could just have all the people who have been benefited by the benevolence fund at some point to stand up. You would be surprised how many people in here at some point have to go and ask for help. It's what the family does Everybody's going to be in that position at different times. There is no shame in that. We're going to close with five questions. Number one, and I'm giving these to you so that you will discuss them with whoever's around you over lunch, this week, whatever. Number one, what hinders your generosity? What hinders your generosity? Seriously, what, what, what are the fears that tempt you to tighten your grip on what God has given you? T- tied to this is, is the question, are, are you worldly? Are, are you worldly? Meaning, are, some of you are in debt because you are trying to live beyond your means. And that hinders you from being generous. You hear a call like this, you're like, I'd love to be generous, but I, I've got so much debt. Now, sometimes there's good debt, sometimes there's bad debt, and there's a way to navigate that. But the question is, are, there, are, are you evaluating it? Do you see your wealth as an entitlement? Do, do you see a raise or a promotion as an opportunity to r- raise your standard of living or your standard of giving? Do you just assume that if you get more money, that means I can spend it on me? Or is your first thought, Lord, how do you want me to use this? What hinders your generosity? Because, remember this, bank statements, credit card statements, are theological statements. They reveal what you love and what you trust, what you run to for life and for comfort. So, what hinders your generosity? Number two, um, how are you evidencing generosity? So, what hinders it, but how are you evidencing it? This requires some, some good self-examination. Again, are you generous? Remember, generosity is an evidence of grace. D- do you give generously to people who are in need? D- do you give sacrificially to, to the work of the Lord among you? So I know this is a transient area. I just want to be really clear. If you are a part of a local church, God calls you to give generously to the local church that you're a part of. So we're not going to call any names or anything like this. We annually run reports to see, um, which I don't look at, uh, but there's one of the elders in overseas kind of looking at, at money all this. I, w- I was just told that there's some tw- almost 20% of members here who haven't given anything this year. Now, I don't say that to shame you. 
But I would just say, if that's you, what's happening in there? What's, what is going on in your heart? Now, if you hear that and you're like, who are you to, I would just say, again, re-listen to the entire sermon. And I think the Lord would say back to us, who are you? Now, some of us may be in financial situations that are really, really difficult. If that's the case, let's talk about it. We're a church family. This is what we do. It doesn't mean you need to come up front and, hey, everybody, here's the situation. But come and, and, and make your, we have a member care team who have people on that team who love to help people think well about their finances. We want to help you to think about being a good steward. How are you evidencing this? Remember, to grow in grace is to grow in generosity. Thirdly, so what hinders your generosity? How are you evidencing generosity? Number three, who is helping you grow in generosity? Who is helping you grow in generosity? Is there someone that you trust that you can, that you can say, hey, listen, I think this should be part of our discipleship. I feel like I just need to let you know kind of where I am money-wise. This is kind of what I make. This is what I save. This is what I give. This is how I spend. Do you, do you think there's some areas I can grow? You would do that in every other area of your life if you're a Christian. Whatever hinders you, whatever makes you go, ooh, I don't know about that. Whatever that is, I encourage you to deal with the Lord on that. He will help you to grow in this area too. Who's helping you? Fourthly, are you in need of generosity? I've already said this, but I'm just going to say it again. If you are in need, make it known. You can reach out to the member care team. You can reach out to one of the elders and say, hey, I heard, I heard that thing today about being in need. I'd, I'd like to talk to somebody. It'll be confidential. We're not going to like bring you up front and all that kind of stuff. But we're, we're happy. We want to help. And then finally, are you growing in your delight of Jesus? Because that is not just what frees you from money and to be generous. It's what frees you. Jesus is what our hearts are looking for. Whether you don't know him or you do know him, he is, he is love. He is God's grace to you. He is what your heart is searching for. And when your heart is full of adoration for him, it frees you to live as God has called you to. Generously. Generous with love. Generous with forgiveness. Generous with the gospel. Generous with resources. Generous with your whole life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through, through that, <laughs> through his poverty, we might become rich. And Lord, we thank you that those riches are not riches that can be counted as silver and gold, stocks and bonds, but rather it is, it is that treasure that moth and rust cannot touch. Oh Lord, would you help us to treasure the treasure of Jesus above all things? Father, here in just a moment, we're going to sing a song about take my life and let it be. Would you help us to not just be religious people who stand up when we're supposed to and sit down when we're supposed to and sing when we're supposed to, who just word, mouth words, but Lord, would you help this to be a prayer from our heart, a, a call to take our lives and to, and to do your way and your will in us? So God, meet us wherever we are, whether we know you or don't. Show us the glory of Jesus and move us to be surrendered. We pray this in the name of Christ.